right, well, good morning, everybody. And of course, I just want to, again, just recognize and say congratulations to Kaylee, and uh, thanks for the family and friends who might be here to help celebrate that baptism. And uh, for those of you who maybe um, are, are kind of newer to, to grace or maybe newer to church in general, a baptism is actually a really, really important step that we celebrate uh, that really is a, uh, a move that you make. It's a step of obedience that you make after you uh, declare that you're a follower of Jesus. And so in the Bible, we would look and say that that's what baptism is. It's a declaration that I'm now following Jesus, uh, that I love him. And so if you're a person who's been coming here to the Medina East Campus and you have given your life to Christ, or if you're a follower of Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, man, we would encourage you to do that. And we know, of course, that there's some of you who are still investigating Jesus and you're still trying to figure all that, and that's fine too. But for those of you who have given your life to Christ and if you have not yet been baptized, uh, we would encourage you uh, to take that step of faith. And so um, on those cards that you got that are in the programs, if you want to check the box that talks about being interested in baptism, we'd be happy to follow up with you and give you some next steps on how to do that. So that's awesome. And I also just want to say, uh, before we kind of jump in here today, happy Father's Day to, uh, to every father who uh, is represented here in this room. And of course, we just want to pause and recognize the important and significant roles uh, that fathers play in the home, uh, that they play in society, that they play in the church. If you've been coming here to the Medina East Campus for a while, you've heard us talk about uh, how significant we think the role of father is and, and just the, the impact that that has on the life of a child. And like I said, the impact that that has on society and the impact that that has in our church. And so I just want to pause and recognize you. If you're a person that wears the title of dad, if you are invested in the, life, uh, the lives of your children, work hard for them and, and do those things, we just want to pause and recognize you and say we love you and appreciate you. Hopefully today you get a chance to feel appreciated and to celebrate the dads in your lives. So it's a good thing. So happy Father's Day. Well, today what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be continuing in a series that we've been in for a long time now for the, pretty much the course of the summer uh, that we have been calling the Everyday Revolution. And if you are a guest with us today or if you're just kind of jumping in, if you missed the past several weeks, thanks for being here. And let me kind of catch you up to speed with what it is that we've been talking about. Uh, so in this series, what we're investigating together is something that's found in the Bible uh, that is actually sometimes referred to as the household codes. You may or may not have heard of this before, but in the Bible, there is a, a, a selection of passages of scripture in the New Testament uh, that is sometimes referred to as the household codes. And as you can see, uh, these are sprinkled kind of all throughout the New Testament of the Bible. And the reason that we've been studying these passages, the household codes, uh, we said that the one thing that they all have in common, kind of the common denominator that unites all of these passages, is that they really talk about the day-to-day, nitty-gritty, everyday relationships of life. And so you see, for example, in the household codes, they deal with the everyday relationships like marriage, like parenting, uh, they talk about work-related relationships. Uh, the household codes deal with generational considerations of how different generations interplay with each other. And it actually even speaks to gender issues and, and how gender operates within society. So these passages really deal with all of these really important uh, everyday relational topics. And so as we've been journeying through this series, we said that what we're doing is we're really looking to answer one very simple question but I think it's a question, if you think about it, that has very profound implications. And so here's the question that we're investigating together. It is this. Does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? Again, super simple question, but I think it has very profound implications. Does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? So to say it another way, does God have a way that he, that he wants us and he's created us to interact in marriage? Does God have a way... Uh, that he wants parenting relationships to look as parents 
raise their children? As children interact with their parents? Does God have an ideal for those things? Does God have an ideal for what something like a sensitive topic like gender roles look like in a society? Is he have an ideal for that? Does God have an ideal for how generations work with each other? Or is it simply that every culture defines those things on their own terms? So does every culture just get to decide what they think marriage should be, what they think parenting should look like, so on and so forth? Or is there a transcendent ideal? Is there an ideal that comes from God that transcends over all of history and transcends over all of culture and applies to all of humanity? And like I said, it's a simple question, but I think it's really, really important and significant uh, in the ramifications of that question. So that's what we're looking at together, and we're saying if God has an ideal and he's our creator, then we want to know what that is. We want to know what the created intent is for these things. So again, just kind of covering what we talked about over the past few weeks, the first week we had a chance to talk about the marriage relationship. And and so if if you were here, you might remember we talked about marriage. We spent a week talking to wives. We said, what does the Bible talk about wives and what are some of the crazy things there? We talked about husbands. We talked to singles. So we had those conversations. And then we moved into a different relationship. We started talking about parents and children. And so for the past three weeks, we spent two weeks talking about what do the household codes teach to parents? And then we also talked last week a little bit about children. We said, what does every child at every age and every stage in life uh, what is their responsibility to their parents? And what does it look like to honor your parents at every, uh, every age and every stage in life? And so this week, what we're going to do is we're actually going to switch gears a little bit. And we're going to look into another uh, kind of everyday relationship that the household codes address. And we're going to start a conversation about generations we're going to talk about today. And so this is really the conversation about how do older and younger generations interact with each other? And what does the Bible teach about that? And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk and address specifically older generations, and then next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk to younger generations. That's kind of our game plan. Now, here's the thing. I know that when I say we're going to be talking about older generations, and I put this up on the screen, there might be some of you in this room who are younger, or maybe you're a young person, or maybe you consider yourself a young person. Young is a relative thing, right? But you might be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't apply to me. Right? Because this is, this is clearly talking to older people, to, to people that are older than I am. And, and so you might be tempted to think that this conversation is irrelevant to you or that this conversation does not apply to you, and you might be tempted to tune me out. Now, of course, I would encourage you not to do that. And here's the reason why. Because I believe that this topic of older generations and how they interact with younger generations is applicable immediately to every single person in this room doesn't matter how young you are, even if you're an elementary school student, a middle school student, a high school student, a college student, I believe that this conversation about older generations applies to every person in this room. And why is that? Well, quite simply, it's because of this. It's because everybody is older than somebody, right? And I know that is a very profound thought, right? You don't get teaching like this anywhere, right? But, but it's true. If you think about it, everybody is older than somebody, and so, and so if you're an elementary school student, how do you interact with your younger brothers and your younger sisters? How do you interact with those who are in a grade below you or behind you? How do you, how do you interact with them? Uh, for those who are in middle school, the same thing. High school, say everybody is older than somebody. And because everybody is older than somebody, the conversation about older generations and how we interact with younger generations is immediately applicable to every single one of us in this room, right? And so, so what we're going to do today is before we look at the household codes on this, I want to start by first taking you to a passage of scripture that I believe does an awesome job of explaining the heart 
of what God's intention is for older generations and how they interact with younger generations. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to grab them with me if you would. We're going to flip over to Judges chapter 2. I actually want you to go to the Old Testament. Like I said, we're going to start in a passage that is not a household code, but I think it just helps explain God's heart, and then we're going to move into the household codes. We're going to start in Judges chapter 2, so grab your Bibles and go to the Old Testament, if you would, to Judges 2. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, or that that's completely fine, we actually have some available for you, and I would encourage you to grab one of those. Uh, you could turn to page 166 in those Bibles that we have provided. That's where you're going to find Judges chapter 2, and, uh, and you can go ahead and get there. And let me just say, too, that if you're a person that doesn't own a Bible, like if you just don't own a copy of the Bible, we actually think it's really important that you have one. You could just have one of ours. You could just take it with you, make it a gift from us to you. You can put your name in it. You can walk out the front door with it. You won't get tackled by someone on the security team. You could just have that. Okay, we think it's really important that you have a Bible. All right, so Judges chapter 2, page 166. You can go ahead and get there. Now, as you're turning to Judges and kind of finding that passage, let me start with a, a little story. So, um, so before I was in vocational ministry, so in other words, before vac- ministry was my job, uh, I used to, I had this awesome opportunity to serve in student ministries, you know, youth groups and middle school groups um, as a volunteer. And so in my early 20s, in my late teens, kind of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, kind of that era, era of my life, uh, I volunteered and I helped with different youth groups. So, so high school students and middle school students. And if any of you have ever done that before, if you ever worked with high school students or if you ever worked with middle school students, you know that it is an absolute blast. Because, I mean, the energy level is super high, and the maturity level is super low, and that is a recipe for a good time all the time. And that's just kind of my personality anyway, and so I loved getting a chance to serve with the high school students. And so I remember this one time, I was working with this youth group, and it was one of those, I mean, just a really thriving, vibrant youth group, and, and the youth pastor, um, it was, did such an awesome job, but he decided that he wanted to, to have a fall retreat. And so he knew a guy who knew a guy, and they had like this, this, this kind of this property in backwoods, West Virginia. And so he's like, we want to get a bunch of kids together. We're going to go down there, and we're going to have this fall retreat. And I thought, man, that sounds like so much fun. So we advertised for this retreat. We tried to gather different people. And so as we did, we had about 50 or 60 students who came down on this retreat with us. And so the youth pastor, as a way of trying to get us all down there, um, he hired or he kind of rented a fleet of these 15 passenger vans. And so I remember we, we all, you know, the students all started to come. We started to load up the vans. And as we were loading up the vans, the youth pastor took the drivers to the side. And I was one of the drivers. And so he kind of took us to the side and he said to us, now listen, he said, before we, we, we load up, he said, I need to let you know. He said, I've been down to this place several times. And he said, and I just need to warn you. So once we get down there, it's going to be a great ride, no problems. He said, we're going to take the highway straight down. He said, but once we get off the highway, he's like, it's going to get crazy. He said, because the place we're going is in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. So he's like, the mountains, he's like, the hills are going to get hilly. The roads are going to get windy. He's like, I mean, this is like West Virginia, like full force. So he's like, I'm just warning you. He's like, there is no cell phone reception down there. And he said, so I, he said, I have never been down there when someone hasn't gotten lost. He said, so I, I want this to be the first time that no one gets lost. So this is what he said. I thought this was brilliant. He said, so here's the game plan. He said, every driver... Your responsibility is the driver behind you. So he said, I'm going to lead the way. He said, and if every driver would make it their primary concern, of course, follow the person in front of you, but if you would make it your primary concern not to pay attention just to the person in front of you, but your responsibility is to the van behind you, 
He says, if you would just maintain an approachable distance, if you would make sure in, in your rearview mirror that they're always being looked out for, so if they slow down, you slow down. If they stop, you stop. He said, if everyone does that, then that will ensure that nobody gets lost. I remember I thought to myself, that's actually a really good idea. So we loaded up the vans, got all the kids in the vans and all kind of stuff. And I, I was in the caravan, and I was driving kind of right in the middle. So there's a couple of vans in front of us. There was a few van, vans behind us. And so we started to make our way down. And just like the youth pastor said, it was a great trip. We, no, no problem. And then we got off the highway. And just like he said, I mean, the, the roads got, you know, the hills got hilly and the roads got windy. And it became pretty evident that we were in the back country of West Virginia. Like I could hear banjo far off in the distance. John Denver songs were rolling through my head, you know. And I was just like, wow, we are. And so we're going around these curves. We're going up and down. And, and all the vans are staying together, though, because we're all paying attention to the person behind us. And everything was going great until this one kid in my van, this one kid in the back of my van goes, Tony. And he had a lot of urgency. He was like, Tony. And I was like, what is it, man? And he's like, I think I'm going to get sick. And I, that made sense. I mean, we were, you know, motion sickness and all that kind of thing. He's like, I think I'm going to get sick. And I was like, this is not a good time. And I just, so I just said to him, I said, uh, I said, what's your, like, percentage of, like, about to get sickness, you know? And he's like, it's probably, like, 95%. And I was like, all right. So pulled over. Kid gets out. All the vans pulled over. Kid just gets sick all over the side of the road. And, of course, all the kids are watching out the window, taking pictures, you know. So we get back in the van, and we're, things are fine. We're driving. Ten minutes down the road, no joke, the kid goes again, Tony, 97%. <laughs> Over. Gets sick. This happens five, six, seven times. This kid keeps getting sick. I felt so bad for him, but at the same time, I was like, dear Lord, child, what did you eat? You know? So after he gets sick the last time, he gets back in the van. Everything's fine. The vans are still behind me, but I noticed that the vans in front of me weren't there anymore. And I was like, oh, man. It's like, well, I was like, maybe they're just, maybe they're just around the corner because it's, you know, it's real windy. So, so I drive up around the corner. They're not there. And I was like, well, maybe they're, the, maybe they're the next fork in the road. Surely they're waiting for me. And so I get to the next fork in the road. There's nobody there. And, and listen, long story short, we got so lost. What was supposed to be a three-and-a-half-hour trip took us seven-and-a-half hours before we finally got back to this place in West Virginia where we were supposed to be. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, here's why I tell you that story. I think that story serves as a great example of a little bit of what God's heart is in the way that older generations interact with and look out for younger generations. I think that that, that story serves as a great example of what's at stake. If older generations don't work to maintain an approachable distance, if older generations don't look back and care and, and look out for the generation behind them. And here's what I believe is at stake. I believe what's at stake if we don't help, look, for those of us who are in older generations and everyone is older than someone, if we don't look back a generation and help them, I think what's at stake is that we might lose an entire generation. And some of you, that might sound sensational, that might sound like an over-exaggeration, but I don't think it is because I think that's exactly what we see in the book of Judges. It's really fascinating. If you're not a Bible person, uh, you might not be familiar with the book of Judges, but let me just tell you, the book of Judges in the Old Testament is arguably the lowest point in all of Scripture. It is one of the most horrific, disgusting, terrible books you can read in the Bible. And, and um, the interesting thing about the book of Judges is that it sits right next to, chronologically, it comes right after the book of Joshua. 
And again, if you, if you don't know anything about the Bible, even though Joshua and Judges sit right next to each other, they couldn't be more opposite. So the book of Joshua is one of the most climactic, sweeping, epic books of the entire Bible. And what you see in the book of Joshua is you see God's people take immensely bold steps of faith. And they watch God work in miraculous ways. So God's people, the Israelites, they enter into the promised land in the book of Joshua. You see God split the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. The walls of Jericho come down in the book of Joshua. I mean, awesome things happen in the book of Joshua. God's people take these big, bold steps of faith. You see a generation that loves God. And you see a generation that acts in faith on the promises of God. And you watch God come through. That's Joshua. It's epic. But then, right after Joshua comes the book of Judges. And like I said, Judges is arguably the lowest point in the whole Bible. Man, some of the things that happen in the book of Judges, what you see, you see the degradation of an entire society. You watch an entire nation collapse in on itself in a downward spiral. You watch the nation do evil things, and increasingly so, right? In the book of Judges, for example, you see some of the most horrific things. The book of Judges is the book where a lady takes a tent peg stake and she pounds it through a dude's temple. That happens in Judges. There's another spot in the book of Judges where a guy has a concubine. A concubine's like a wife on the side. And there's a group of ravenous people who want to take advantage of her. And so he gives them to her. And they take advantage of her until she dies. And then he takes her body and he cuts it up into 12 pieces. And he sends it into the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what happens in the book of Judges. Just horrific things. The level of evil that you see in Judges is unprecedented. And here's a question. How do you go... Joshua, this epic book, this sweeping high point. It's the book of Judges, the lowest point in all of Scripture. And what I think is so fascinating is that we actually have a reason, and we find it right at the very beginning of the book of Judges. And that's why I had you turn to Judges chapter 2. So I want to show you this, a couple of very peculiar little verses that we find there. Here's what it says in Judges 2. Start off in verse 8. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, let me just be clear here. Joshua... That's the guy that the book of Joshua is named after. That's that same Joshua, okay? This is the guy who is, who is a faithful leader of his people. This was the guy who led his people into the promised land. That's this Joshua. So Joshua, son of Nun, the Bible says, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. So he lived a good long life. The Bible says, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the, country, in, the, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. So Joshua dies, they bury him. Now look at this. The Bible says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, now real quick, when the Bible says that they had been gathered to their ancestors, that's just a really diplomatic way of saying that they all died. So after that generation died, Joshua's generation died, look what the Bible says. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord, now this is key, they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The Bible says, after Joshua's generation died out, a new one came up, and they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for them. So the Bible says, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. The Baals were the pagan gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, what's so fascinating is this, that you have Joshua, and then right afterwards, you have the book of Judges, and at the beginning of Judges, before the downward descent, before, before the degradation of an entire nation, the Bible seems to give us some indication of what happened. And one of the reasons the Bible says that this occurred was because the previous generation, Joshua's generation, failed to look back and they failed to pass it down to the next generation, the generation of judges. 
and, and you see that this takes place. Now, what is, this, what is God's word telling us here? What can, we glean, what can we glean from this? What does this speak about the responsibility of older generations to younger generations? Well, I think here's part of it. I think what this reveals to us is that each generation is responsible for the generation behind them. This is actually an idea we see all throughout scripture. The whole Bible teaches this idea that the responsibility of each generation is to look back and to look out for the generation that's coming behind them, the generation that, that comes up behind them. That's what God intends for us. Just like in my caravan that I was telling you about, every van looks out for the van behind it. And if every van can look out for the van behind it, that will ensure that nobody gets lost. And it seems like when you look at scripture, you come to realize that that is God's plan. That's the way God wants us to interact, generations older to younger. So we're to look out for the previous generation. See, and here's the thing. I think it's easy for us, when I talk about the, the generation of Joshua, I think it's easy for us sometimes to be critical of them. It's easy for us to be critical and say, man, how could they fail to pass down all the awesome things that they had seen and all the amazing things that God had done to the next generation? How did they fail to do that, right? It's easy for us to be critical. But I think before we get too critical of them, it's important for us to realize that this is a very easy thing to do. It is easy to overlook the next generation. It was easy for Joshua's generation to do it. It's easy for ours. And, and quite honestly, I think that it's sort of our natural default to do this. I was just thinking about this uh, recently, and what I've, what I've noticed, and this probably comes as no surprise to you, my guess is you would probably validate, validate this, I find that a lot of times we overlook the next generation. The reason is not because we mean to. It's usually unintentional. The reason that we overlook the next generation, I believe, is because for many of us, we find that the primary concern that we have in life is looking out for our own interests. Which I don't think it's a bad thing to look out for our own interests, but oftentimes, as we're looking out for our own interests, we will inadvertently overlook the interests of others. Just a quick example of that. Uh, I've noticed in my, my several years of being in ministry that a lot of times when people find out I'm a pastor, you know, it's always an interesting conversation because you're talking with someone and they find you're a pastor, so they stop cussing and they put their cigarette away and you're like, that's not what I'm trying to say. But anyway, um, a lot of times when, when that happens, we usually get in the conversation of God's stuff. Start talking about God stuff. And, and a lot of times people are like, yeah, I go to this church or I'm involved in this ministry and those things. And I've noticed something. I notice that a lot of times when I ask people why they're connected to a church or why they're connected to a ministry, a lot of times the reasons they give me are ones of self-interest. And that makes sense, right? So, so I'll ask people, why do you go to the church that you go to? And they say, oh, man, I just really love the teaching there. It's got such good teaching. And, you know, I just, I get, I get fed there. It's really important that I get fed and I used to go to this other church. I didn't get fed. I didn't get much out of it. But now I get fed, and that means a lot to me. And I'm like, that makes sense. Or I'll talk to people, and they'll say, yeah. I'm like, why, why do you connect to that church? I'm like, I love the music. The music is so good. And it's the genre I prefer. And it's the style that I like. And I just, I feel like I can really connect. And I used to go to this other church, and they did music that wasn't my style, wasn't my thing. So I went to this other church, and that, that, that just makes sense to me. Talk to some people. Why are you connected to that ministry? Well, I just get a lot out of it. They have things for me. There's people that are my age. I can connect. They're the same stage of life that I'm in. I just feel like I can get, I used to be part of this other thing, and I didn't just get nothing out of it, right? And, and listen, uh, I just want you to hear me correctly. I'm not criticizing that. I'm not. I think, I think it's very important to be part of a church that you get fed. I think that's really important. I think it's an awesome thing if you can connect to the music, if you feel like it, it connects with you, if you can worship God. That's a wonderful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing if you, can, if you can be with other people that are the same age that you are and learn from them in the same season of your life. I think that's a wonderful thing. 
Don't hear me wrong. I'm not criticizing that, and I don't want you to feel guilty about those things. But here's what I found. I found that oftentimes people are so, many, so, so concerned about making sure that their own needs are met and satisfied that they inadvertently overlook the needs of others. See, and I think what the Bible would say is that we have to remember that it is our responsibility to look out for others, for the, to the generations that came behind us. And I can tell you this for sure, that in my time of ministry, that people who consider the needs of others above their own are rare. It's really rare. I, uh, uh, I, uh, I, when I was serving at one of our other camp, before we started the Medina campus, I was serving at one of our other campuses. And I'll never forget this one time I was, I was uh, speaking, I was teaching a series. And after I was done speaking, I got off the platform, uh, just like I would do here, and I went out in the cafe and I was talking to people. And there was this woman that had been going to our church for a long time, and I knew her, she was a dear woman. And, uh, but she was, she was about 75 years old. And if you guys know Grace Church, Grace Church is just relatively young. We're young in our approach. We're young in our kind of our programming. Uh, we have a lot of little kids, so it's a loud church. It can, you know, be stinky sometimes because we have so many kids. And, and that's kind of the way we are. And so she, she was sort of a little rare because she she's 75. And I knew her and loved her. And I remember she came up to me after the, after the sermon was done. And she was saying nice things to me about the sermon, which was awesome. And, and so we started this conversation. I don't remember how this happened, but she said to me, she said, I just, she said, I just need to tell you, I love this church. I love this church. And, uh, and, it was, and I knew her, and we had a relationship. So I, I just kind of pressed her a little bit on it. I said, you know what? I said, that's so fast. I said, why do you love this church? And it was awesome. She's so sharp. She's like, why are you asking me that? Is it because I'm old? And I was like, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> Kinda. kinda. I said, kinda. You said, you're kind of abnormal here, and I think it's awesome. And I said, but I just, I want to know why you come. I said, is it, I said, is it the music? I said, because a lot of people come here because the music. The music's awesome, and, and that's probably, and I love her response. She goes, no. She goes, I, the music's okay. She goes, I, I, I like it just fine. She said, but I prefer, if it, was my, if it was my choice, I prefer the old hymns. She's like, I love the four-part harmonies. That's how I grew up, and she's like, and plus, the music's way too loud here. Every weekend, and this is no joke, she wore earplugs. She'd put earplugs in during the music because it was too loud for her. So I said, well, you don't like the music and you put earplugs in, so why do you come? I said, well, clearly, clearly, it's got to be the teaching, right? It's the teaching. And uh, I love her response. She's like, no. <laughs> she's like, I mean, she's like, you're all right. And I was like, you crazy old woman. <laughs> you know, and she's like, she's like, no. She goes, no, undoubtedly, you're easy on the eyes. I was like, well... She didn't say that, but she did say, she said, uh, she goes, no, that's not what it is. And this is what she said. I thought this was so awesome. This, her answer impressed me so much. As she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, you want to know why I come here? And she kind of started to point around, and she said, you see all these young women? You see all these little kids? She said, they don't know the first thing about what it means to be married, to be a wife, to be a mom. She said, they don't, they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And she said, my, my husband passed, but she said, we didn't have a perfect marriage, but we had a good one. And she said, and we love God, and we, we, we learned what that meant together. And she said, and we've raised our kids, and they're all out of the house, and we didn't do perfect, but our kids are doing well, and they love Jesus. She said, we, I've been following Jesus for over 50 years. And she said, the reason I'm here is for them. I'm here for them. And I was so floored by that. And I just remember I thought to myself, I was like, I want to be like you. I want to be like you when I grow up. And I looked at her and I said to her, I was just so 
floored by her response. I looked at her and I said, I said, man, I am so glad you're here because these women need you. They need you. And I, I remember I said to her, I said, I looked at her and I said, do you know how rare you are? Do you have any idea how rare you are? And I love her response. She looked at me and she goes, I know. <laughs> I was like, and you're humble. So that's a good thing too, but she's awesome. But I'm just telling you, it, it's a rare thing to find. That. And sometimes we inadvertently overlook the next generation because we're just not thinking about it. And, and it's a rare thing to find someone that has a mentality like this. But it seems as if the Bible tells us over and over again that that's God's desire. That let me show you in Psalms. The psalmist says it this way. We'll tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, of his power and his wonders that he's done. You see, the Bible says this is God's plan, is that we're going to tell the next generation about the praiseworthy deeds of God. God has entrusted each generation to pass it on to the next generation. This is the same thing in Psalm 145, 3 and 4. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The one generation commends your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. Same idea. God has designed it in such a way that one generation is to look out for the previous generation, is to look out for the generation before them, is to look out for the generation before them. And that ensures that nobody gets lost. And you guys, I think, I think because this is the responsibility of older generations and everyone's older than somebody, I think that this also means something, something else very important that's part of our responsibility, and that's this. I think that because it's our responsibility to look out for previous generations, Older generations must be patient and persistent with the next generation. And this is so important, not critical and not condescending. I think because God has given us a responsible to look back and pour into the next generation, that means that it's our job to be patient and to be persistent with them in pursuing them rather than critical or condescending of them. One of the things I didn't tell you about my West Virginia story was... Um, after I had gotten lost, uh, I eventually found my way back and got to West Virginia. And the way that happened was we, we eventually drove until we got back into cell phone range. And when we got in cell phone range, I called uh, someone back home, and they knew directions. And I got directions, and we figured it out. We figured it out, but it took us four hours before we eventually got there. And when I finally got to this property in West Virginia, the first thing I did, as you can imagine, was I went right up to the guy who was responsible for the van in front of me. And I remember I went up to him and I, was, I had to like kind of talk myself through it because I remember thinking like, give him the benefit of the doubt. There's probably a reasonable explanation for why they left. There probably, it was an emergency or something. But I'll be honest with you, I was frustrated. I was real frustrated. I mean, I had just been in the van for seven and a half hours with a bunch of teenagers. So I was like, it's mad, you know? So I, so I went up to the guy and I was like, dude, I was like, dude, what happened? What happened back there? And, and this is what he said to me. He looked at me and he goes, man, I goes, I'm so sorry, man. I didn't know that was going to happen. I was like, I, I, said, I said, what happened? And he goes, this is what he said. He said, well, he goes, you guys just kept stopping. You kept stopping and stopping and stopping. And, and honestly, I was just like, man, it's going to take us forever to get here if we keep stopping. He's like, and so the kids in my van started to get real restless. And they're like, we want to go. We want to go. Why are we stopping again? And he said, and the van in front of me kept inching forward. And so I kind of started, he's like, and eventually we just went. We just went. And I figured you'd figure something out. And I looked at this guy and I said, you whitewashed wall, you know? <laughs> I was like, you figured I'd figure something out? You know I've never been here before. I've never, literally never been here before. I'll figure something out. And I remember I looked at him and I said to him, I said, dude, I said, it was not your job 
to pay attention to the van in front of you. It was not your responsibility to just listen to the whining kids that were in your van. It was your job to maintain an approachable distance and to, and to make sure that I could follow you because I don't know where I'm going. It wasn't your job to be annoyed with me. And, and listen, in the same way, I think that the, the, the older generations, our responsibility is not to be annoyed. It's not to be critical. It's not to be condescending. It's to be patient. It's to be persistent. It's to maintain a reasonable distance so the next generation can follow us. That's what it is. It's interesting. I, one of the things that breaks my heart and I'm just as guilty as this as anyone, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a hypocrite on this. But one of the things that really breaks my heart, honestly, is when I hear older generations criticize younger generations. And I, I do it too, and it breaks my heart to think that I do. But there are times, it breaks my heart when I hear people, you know, just criticize and be condescending towards previous, towards the next generation. So people, you hear them just, you know, millennials, it's millennials, so lazy, so entitled, get everything handed to them, millennials. They're going to be the ruin of this culture. Yeah, but didn't every older generation say that about the next generation? Isn't that true for every generation? And by the way, whose responsibility is it then to, 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 to help this next generation, to model for them? And to, who raised this generation? And so we're, we're responsible for this. I, I, before I worked here at the Medina East Campus, my wife and I served for seven years with the college ministry at one of our other campuses. And I remember I used to have high school seniors come up to me. They, were, they would come up and they'd say, hey, Pastor Tony, I'm graduating this year. And I was like, that's awesome. Congratulations. We're excited about having you come up to the, to the college ministry. And they used to say this. They would say, well, is there any way I can start coming now? Because I'm going to graduate anyway, and so can I just start coming now? And I used to ask them. I'd say, well, why do you want to come now? And this was a very common response. A lot of times I get this. They would say, well, I go to the youth group now. I'm part of the student ministries. But honestly, it's just, it's so, it's so immature and it has nothing for me. And so there's all the freshmen and they're so immature and there's the sophomores and there's so much drama and they do all these little kid things and I'm ready to be a grown up. I'm ready to go to the grown up thing now where you guys serve coffee and stand around in circles and talk about adult things, you know, or whatever. And the, so they'd be like, so can I start coming to the college ministry? And I used to say this to them. I would say, listen, you can come to the college ministry, but only under one condition. And they're like, what's that? And I would say, you need to stay at your youth group and serve. And they'd be like, well, they're so immature and there's nothing, I'm getting nothing out of it. Why would I stay there? And I'd say, listen, listen, you're looking at it the wrong way. And I would say, don't waste the most influential year that you have. I said, freshmen and sophomores, they think you're cool, even if you're not, <laughs> right? I'm like, leverage that. Take it. God has given you influence in their life, man. Take advantage of that. Yeah, but they're so immature and they're so, yeah, just like you were when you were a freshman and when I was a, just like we were. And so our responsibility is not to be critical or condescending or annoyed. It's to be patient, to be persistent. I believe this. I believe that the healthiest church, and this is what I pray for for our church too. I believe the healthiest church is one where every generation is looking out for the one before it. Every generation is looking out for the generation behind it. I think that that's the best, most healthiest way that a church is structured. And so if you're a person and you're retired or you're an empty nester, if that's kind of the phase of life that you're in right now, listen, there are so many young people that come to our church who are trying to navigate through what married life looks like. There are so many people who are trying to figure out how to raise kids I don't know the first thing about that. They're trying to navigate what it looks like to follow Jesus at this stage in their life. And listen, I'm just telling you, they need you. They need you. 
Because, because maybe for you, maybe there was bumps along the way and you learned the hard way and there was trial and error and all those kind of things. But I'm just telling you, God can use your successes and he can use your failures and he can use those things to help pour them in the next generation. There are college students right now, young adults who are trying to figure out the dating scene. It's so difficult to do that today. Trying to navigate through the relationships of life. Trying to, trying to figure out what, what, what life following Jesus looks like in a culture that wants nothing to do with him. And some of you have been following Jesus for a long time and you've navigated and they need you. They need you. I believe the healthiest church is one where every generation is looking out for the generation before them. Because listen, if every generation can look out for the generation before them, then that ensures that no one will get lost. No one will get lost. I think older generations must set a good example in speech and conduct for younger generations. It's our responsibility as older generations and everyone's older than somebody to set a good example in speech and in conduct. It's interesting, this is where the household codes come in. Let me show you one household code. This is in Titus chapter two. Uh, this is the premier household code on the, the relationship of older and younger generations. Let me show you what it says. So the apostle Paul, who was one of the founders of the early church, he is writing to his young protege, a guy by the name of Titus. And here's what he says to Titus. He says, you however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men, remember everyone's older than somebody, but teach the older generation to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. So in other words, he says, Titus, you need to instruct the older generations, and everyone's older than someone, basically to live in a way that honors God. That's what he says. Live in a way that's congruent with the gospel. Now watch what he says next. He says, likewise, teach the older women, the older generation of women, and everyone is older than somebody, to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So again, he says the same thing. He says, teach women to live a life that honors God. Teach them to do that. Now, I want you to notice what he says next because this is crucial. He says, then they, the older generation of women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, that no one will malign the word of God. And then he goes on, he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And everything, now this is key, set an example for them by doing what is good in your teaching. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. I want you to notice the Apostle Paul's logic. Here's what he says. He says, teach older generations to live in a way that honors God. Why? Not just so they can enjoy life that honors God, which is a good thing. But he says, but for the sake of the next generation, to set a good example to show integrity, to have soundness of speech. It's not just to think about your own needs, but it's also to think of the needs of, the, of others, to help the generation that's coming up behind us to grow in the way that God wants. And listen, I probably don't need to take too much time to harp on this, but I think it's clear that we live in a culture right now where the need for older generations to invest in younger generations is huge. I probably don't need to spend much time convincing you of uh, of the challenges, the unique challenges that this next up-and-coming generation faces in a unique way. Just to give you some picture of what I'm talking about, this past week I, I was doing some research, and according to the U.S. Census that was done a couple of years ago, they found that the number of children that grow up in a single-parent home is only growing. And so uh, the, US, the U.S. Census showed that one in three families in America grow up without dad from day one. You know, one of the things that we celebrate here together, we celebrate Father's Day, and the reason we do that is because we really believe that the role of father is super important 
and the influence of that role that God has placed is, is, is huge. And yet we see more and more families are growing up without that person involved. And then you compound that with the fact, compound that with the reality that uh, you have technology and you have uh, all the, the challenges that come with social media and the, the, all of those things. So, for example, Philip Zimbardo, uh, he wrote an amazing book called The Demise of Guys. And in that book, according to his analysis, he discovered that the average male today, by the age of 21, young men play 10,000 hours of video game on average by the age of 21. Just to give you some sense of scale, it takes half that amount of time to earn a bachelor's degree. All right. I was also reading another article, and it was talking about the effects of social media. It was an article that was written by the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and it was talking about how social media has uh, negative body image effects on women. They explained how girls as young as five years old already have a negative view of themselves, which leads to eating disorders and all types of complexities in life and those things. You compound on top of that the pornography industry today. Back in 1977, it was a $10 million industry. Today is a $13.3 billion industry. Most children will, will unintentionally encounter hardcore pornography by the age of 12. So you take all of this and you put it together, and what do you have? You have a culture where most of the time parents are less involved. They're being raised by social media. They're being raised by video games. And all of this in a very sexually disorienting culture. And I'm just saying, what's at stake if we fail to help navigate through this, if we fail to help process through and, and invest in the next generation? I think what's at stake is you can lose an entire generation. You can lose an entire generation. The book of Judges is at stake. You guys can probably tell, even just kind of processing through this, that I get passionate about this topic. And I'll just be honest with you. The reason I get so passionate about this topic is because I am the recipient of this very principle. Older generations that have invested themselves and took very seriously the responsibility of investing in the next generation, and I'm, I'm the recipient of that. And so for me, some of you guys, you know my story. I've, I've told my story in snippets before from up front, but just to give you a snapshot into my story, I, I started following Jesus when I was about 17 years old. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't, I just remember it was in that season when I started to follow Christ and uh, in that season was just one of the most rapid growing times spiritually for me. But when I think about that, that season of my life and those formative years, there are really three names of next generation people, older, older generation people that I can think of that intentionally and purposely poured and invested into my life. Those three names, I've talked about them before. The first one is my Aunt Andrea. So I have an aunt and uh, she, she came to know the Lord. She got real, real excited about Jesus and started getting connected to the church. And, uh, and when she started doing that, she began to serve. She started serving with the youth group. And, uh, and so she would, I, was, I was her nephew, so she invited me to come. And I didn't want to come. I did, in fact, I didn't. She, I, I turned her down several times until eventually she was persistent. She said, just come. So I went. And the weirdest thing was I liked it. And all of a sudden, uh, through that process, I gave my life to Jesus. It took a little while, but I finally gave my life to Christ after digging into the Bible and learning more things. There was another guy that was part of that youth group. His name was Tony. It's an awesome name. And he's, uh, he was an older guy, and he was, uh, he was in an older generation. He was actually a single dad, worked full-time job, volunteered with the youth group. And this guy and my Aunt Andrea, every week, they would set up snacks that they bought with their own money. My Aunt Andrea would pick me up in her car every Wednesday and every Sunday. 
They would take me. They would set up the thing. They would teach a Bible lesson that they prepared. I don't even know when because they both worked full time. And they would teach this Bible lesson to a group of 12 to 15 inattentive, hyperactive teenagers. And through that ministry, somehow in there, I gave my life to Jesus. I remember after I gave my life to Christ, I had this opportunity to go on a summer trip that uh, it was like uh, they traveled around the country with a group of teenagers and they would teach you how to do ministry. And there was another older generation man on that, on that trip. His name was TK. His wife's name was Dana. They had two kids and they sacrificed their entire summer to drive 33 teenagers around on a big blue bus without air conditioning in the heat of the summer to teach us how to do ministry. And I'm telling you, that guy made a massive impact in my life. He actually challenged me to teach my very first sermon. He was there when I was 18 years old. He sat in the front row when I preached my first sermon. And I'm just telling you, when I think back to those three, three, three people, TK and Tony and Maya and Andrea, I just gotta be honest with you. As a grown man now in my 30s, when I look back at what they did, I just can't help but think to myself, my goodness, how easy it would have been for them to do anything else, anything else. I mean, to, the sacrifice it must have been for them to week in, week out, give of themselves in these ways. I guarantee there were times they probably just thought to themselves, is this worth it? And now as an adult male, I think to myself, man, how in the world were they willing to give themselves like that? And, and it just, it boggles my mind. And I'll be honest with you, whenever I think about those three names, there's always two things that happen in my heart. And the first one is this, I am just overcome with gratitude. I'm so thankful. And my guess is if you had someone that invested in you like that, a teacher or a coach or a, a youth worker or a pastor, and maybe you didn't, and if you didn't have anyone invest in you like that, I think that only reveals the need for this all the more. But my guess is if you do and you think back to that person, you probably, if you take a moment and think, you're so grateful for them. So grateful because, man, I think for myself, where would I be if it wasn't for them? I, mean, I guarantee, I guarantee it, I wouldn't be here. I don't even know if I would know God or follow God. I'm just so thankful. And so my heart gets full of gratitude. But here's, here's the second thing that happens. The second thing that happens is I get inspired. I just get inspired. I get inspired to live the same way pour my life out into someone else. It mattered so much to me. I want to live that same way. So listen, here's the thing. For some of you right now, you're doing this. You're doing this right now. Maybe, you're, maybe you are currently discipling somebody. Maybe for you, you, there's a coworker or there's a friend or there's a family member and you're trying to help navigate them right now through life and you're, you're investing in them. Maybe you're a person that serves with the next, a next generation ministry of some type. Maybe you serve with New Perspective or with Power Kids or with student ministries. And maybe for you right now, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you're like, man, I, I, I'm starting to just get tired. And, and, and for you, maybe you're asking the question, is it worth it to keep doing this? And let me just, let me just say to you, please, don't get weary in well-doing. What you're doing matters so much. It matters more than you know. And I know that in the day in, day out, sometimes it doesn't feel like anything is, is happening or anything is changing, but it matters. It matters a lot. And there's so much at stake. And so I wanna encourage you to keep going. For some of you, honestly, right now, you're thinking, okay, I hear what you're talking about. You're talking about pouring in the next generation. And some of you might be like, but you don't understand, man. I have nothing to offer. You're like, some people learn by trial and error. I just learn by error. All I've got is a bunch of mistakes. So what am I supposed to do? And listen, here be my encouragement to you. God can use your, your, your successes and he can use your failures. And what I'm talking about when I'm talking about investing in the next generation is not that you have all the answers, not necessarily. It's just that you take what's in your bucket and you pour it into someone else's. 
that you take the things that you've learned and you help pass them down to the next generation. So what do we do with a message like this? Well, I have a couple of thoughts, and I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, uh, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to take some time. For those of us who follow Jesus, as we, as we worship and we sing, I would encourage you to pray and to think and ask God, God, what would it look like for me to invest in the next generation in my life? Maybe for some of you, I mean, it could look a million different ways. Maybe for some of you, you already have names that are in your mind. There's people that you're thinking about. And maybe there's a, a coworker or there's another family member or there's someone in your life, a neighbor or someone that you're thinking about and they're, they're having a hard time navigating through life. What if you just made a, made a decision? I'm gonna look back to them and I'm gonna make sure that I, I set a good example and that I'm accessible to them. Maybe I'm gonna try to meet up with them on a regular basis to pour into that person. It's an awesome way to do it. Maybe for some of you, you could do that. Maybe for some of you, this is a step towards discipleship. And if you've been coming to the Medina East Campus, one of the things we're so passionate about is making disciples because that's what Jesus has commanded his people to do. And if that's, a, if that's a thought process that seems so foreign to you or so weird to you, I would actually encourage you. I'd say, man, go, go to our disciple-making training. There's one that's coming up. It's in your program. You could sign up for that, and we just talk about what does it mean to make disciples. This whole conversation I'm having today is just, it's all about discipleship. That's what it is. So for maybe some of you want to get connected to that, maybe for some of you, honestly, it's maybe it's connecting to a next generation ministry, like New Perspective or Student Ministries or Power Kids or signing up to help with Bible Camp or something to help. It can look a million different ways. But I would just encourage you as we take this time to worship and sing, would you ask God, what would it look like for me to not overlook the next generation, but to pour into them in these ways? Let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you for uh, your design in the way that you intended and created um, your people and society to function. And Lord, the thought that each generation looks out for the next seems obvious and it seems like a brilliant plan, but yet it's something that's overlooked often. And God, the truth is that all of us, and myself included, we are naturally inclined to look out to our own interests. And that makes sense, but... uh, I pray that you'd help us to not, to not simply look out to our own interests, but Father, that we would look out to the interests of others. Of course, we know that the only way we can do that is if we're motivated by your love. Uh, because Jesus, you are the one who did not serve just yourself, but you served us. And Jesus, when you came here and you died on the cross and when you considered our needs above our own, that was a display of a radically self, selfless love. It's a love that is unearthly. It's a love that is foreign to us. But God, it's that very same love that when we internalize it will propel us to live lives that are similar. And so, Father, I pray for that very reason that the love of Jesus will be at work in our hearts. Help us, God, not to overlook the next generation, but to invest in them in these ways. God, we just want to say thank you so much for all of those who have taken time to invest in us, God. Thanks for those who gave of themselves and gave of their time and sacrificed of their energy to think about us. And God, we're just so grateful for it. So I pray as we go from this place that we'd be inspired and be encouraged, Father, to do the same. And we love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. 